Big God, big God, yeah, t- totally right. Uh, hey, we are starting a brand new series this morning, uh, simply called The God Who Gives. The God Who Gives. It's in some ways a continuation of the series that we were just in, uh, which was called Neighbors. We were learning how to love our neighbors and do it well. And it's in some ways a prelude to the Christmas series, which will begin in, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, because at the heart of Christmas is a God who gives, right? I mean, that, isn't that really the essence of the Christian Christmas message that at the heart of Christmas is a God who gives. He gives a gift of restoration to a world that he did not mess up. He didn't create the mess, and yet he was the one who gave this gift of restoration to it. We see a God who came down, who left in order to fix it up. He went out, he pursued, and in that pursuit we find healing. And so we're going to be focusing on this God who gives, who searches after, who pursues who chases after. Today we're going to discuss probably what is most uh, considered the most famous Bible verse in all of Scripture. Uh, Tim Tebow just referenced it, John 3.16. Now, here's the thing. Most everybody knows um, this verse. Uh, e- even if you're not a Christian, you, you probably at least have seen this verse because people like Tim Tebow wear it uh, on their face. You at least know the reference of John 3.16, right? People like Tim Tebow wear it on their face. You may not know exactly what John 3.16 says, but you know the reference. Um, we see it on the bottom of cups at restaurants. This is inside out, right? They place John 3.16 in the bottom of their cups. And then you see it like, you know, sports gatherings. You see people holding up signs that say, hey, John 3.16, all over the place. You can't really read that. That's a Vikings game, by the way. Go Vikes. And then, uh, and then at a Giants game, of course. But uh, really, they're all over the place, right? People were, hold up John 3.16 um, all over the place. Anywhere that they can get John 3.16 in front of people, people tend to put John 3.16 out there because it's such a popular verse. And even if you don't know what the verse says, you probably at least have seen the reference somewhere. This verse has captured the attention of the world and for good reason, because this verse in a lot of ways sums up everything that we believe as Christ followers. As Jesus people, John 3.16 in a lot of ways sums up everything that we're about. It sums up everything that the gospel is about. And what most people don't realize, however, about John 3.16 is that it is a summary text. It's a summary of the 15 verses that had come before it. And so, at the beginning of a conversation that Jesus begins to have with This guy by the name of Nicodemus, we're told that this, we're told that there was this Pharisee, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. And so the Pharisees were the teachers of the law, right? They gathered all of the Jewish people in their synagogues to teach them the law, to, to instruct them on the way of a godly life, to teach them the life of God, the traditions of the Jewish people, and the instructions on, on how to gain God's favor. And so they would gather all of the Jewish people, and they were the teachers, They're the ones who are instructing the people on how to live a godly life. And the essence of their teaching, right, the essence of their instruction on how to live a godly life was strict obedience to the Torah, the 613 laws of the Old Testament. So they'd come and they would gather Jewish people together and they would say, hey, here are our explanation of the 613 laws. And if you can follow these laws, then you will gain God's favor and you will live a godly life. And the Pharisees looked at themselves and their own piety to the law, and they publicly acknowledged that they were on another tier above everybody else. Now, this isn't something that they hid from anybody. They publicly flaunted this as a reality. We are on a different tier than everybody else. We are holier than you. We follow the law better than anybody else. All right? We are the example. We are the model. Look to us as to how you ought then to live your life. And the Pharisees in general, they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus because he claimed to have come from God, but he didn't hang around with all of the other people who were considered the most godly. 
So the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. He didn't have nice things to say about these self-righteous Pharisees who, who put themselves publicly on a different tier than everybody else. He shunned all of their religious traditions because they held their religious traditions above loving their neighbor. Which is kind of odd because if you understand the Old Testament law, the whole essence of the law is that we would love God and that we would learn to apply that love to our neighbor. But if a man needed medical attention on the Sabbath, they would wait until the day after the Sabbath because their law told them that they were to rest on the Sabbath day. And so they couldn't help their neighbor on the Sabbath because they were supposed to be resting. If they had already given their tithe to the temple, they wouldn't be concerned about the people that they saw in need because they believed that they had already done their religious duty by giving away 10% of their income to the church or to the synagogue or to the temple. The Pharisees recognized, like all of us, however, that they were guilty, they were broken, they were ashamed, and the solution that they chose to fix this was their religious observance. They were trying to gain God's favor by the way that they lived their life, holier than thou, doing everything right, never stumbling right, following all 613 laws perfectly. They thought that they could actually fix the innate problem that we all know that we have. And in this way, I think there is a little bit of a Pharisee in all of us. There's a Pharisee in all of us. All of us have felt the weight of the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment. We've all let somebody down at some point in our life. We've all let somebody down. We've all failed to live up to our standard for what it means to live you know, correctly upon this earth. Certainly we've all failed to live up to God's standard of perfection for what it means to live. And in response to this acknowledgement that we've messed up, that we are broken, that we are embarrassed and we're ashamed, that we have this guilt upon our shoulders, in response to this, we've all tried to fix it. We've all done this. This is like a universal reality. Every single person has tried to do this. Religion is that thing that we do in order to fix the innate problem that we all know we have. Or in other words, everybody is religious. Everybody is religious. There's a little bit of a Pharisee in all of us. We're all trying to fix the problem that we all know that we have. So what do we do? We run, and we hide, and we erase, and we deny, and we drink, and we poke, and we lie, and we cover up, or we go to church, or we go to mosque, or we go to synagogue. All of this is an attempt to feel better about the mess within us. Everyone uses ineffective coping mechanisms because at the end of the day, you cannot outrun your guilt. You cannot drink away your shame. You can't wash it away at the bar and you cannot erase it for the long term. You just cannot do it. It always haunts you. It's always hanging over you. But here we have Nicodemus, this guy who was a, a very, very religious man hoping to fix the innate problem that he knows he has. And he's coming to Jesus, and he's coming to him at night. And the reason that he's coming to Jesus at night is because he is sympathetic to what Jesus has to say. But every other Pharisee within his community hated what Jesus had to say. They didn't like what Jesus was saying. And so he comes to him at night. He comes to him in secret because he is sympathetic to Jesus. He saw something in Jesus that was different than all of the religious attempts to fix himself. There was something different about Jesus that was different about his religion. Something different that, about Jesus that might actually cure him deep inside, that might actually fix the problem that he is trying to fix with religion. There is something different about Jesus. Where all the other attempts to fix himself proved incapable, he saw something in Jesus that was very, very true. So something prompted his sympathy to say to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, there is obviously something special about you, Jesus, and, and everybody knows it. Even the Pharisees recognize that there's something unique and special about you, Jesus. And so Jesus replies, well, very truly, I tell you, 
Very truly, I tell you, this is a phrase that Jesus uses often, especially in the Gospel of John. Very truly, I tell you. It means listen carefully. Listen very carefully. Pay attention to what I'm about to say because what, I about, what I'm about to say is true. So pay attention. No one can see the kingdom of God. Now, real quick, this whole conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus is actually about the kingdom of God. Uh, John is going to use words like eternal life, and really for him, that's just synonymous. The kingdom of God and eternal life, they mean the same thing for John. The question at hand that Nicodemus is asking is, how do I gain eternal life? That's the question he wants to know. And so, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born. And of course, immediately Nicodemus says, oh, Jesus, I know the answer. I know the answer. Uh, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born of Abraham. Yes, that is the answer, Jesus. Okay, that's what everybody knows. You have to be a Jew to inherit the kingdom of God. You have to be a Jew to gain eternal life. You have to be born into the Jewish people. And then you can be an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Or or, or Jesus, um, no one can inherit the kingdom of God unless they are born a male. Uh, Yes, the inheritance of God is reserved for the males, specifically those males born of Abraham's line. It was thought, at least, that it was reserved for the Jewish males. No one can inherit the kingdom of God unless they are righteous, right? The kingdom is reserved for those who are worthy to receive it through their faithful and committed obedience to the law. And Jesus is like, dude, what what are you talking about? Why are you cutting me off in the middle of my conversation? Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. <laughs> again? That, geez, that doesn't even make any sense. You know, like, what, what are you even talking about? How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born again. And even if they could, Jesus, you know, that wouldn't assure anybody that they would be born of Abraham. It wouldn't assure anybody that they're going to be born a male. It wouldn't assure anybody that they're going to be uh, born righteous. What are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you trying to get at? And so Jesus says, okay, well, let me, let me try this again, Nicodemus. Let me, let me try this again. Listen carefully, because what I'm about to tell you is true. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, and the spirit flesh gives birth to flesh but spirit gives birth to spirit now this is where this conversation gets a little challenging if you've ever been confused by reading the gospel man you're not alone okay if you've ever read try to read the bible and you're like what the heck am i reading uh you're not alone and, and this is one of those those times where you might be confused by this so let me try to help you out a little bit jesus is referring to baptism baptism of water and a baptism of spirit and the reason he, die, uh, he, he ties this new birth into baptism is because baptism is essentially about dying to something old in order for a rebirth to take place. And so the baptism of water was an indication of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and it was the sign of one's conversion. That's where conversion took place. And in their thought, and typically in our thought as well, you become a Christian when you are baptized by water. But the baptism of spirit was the power then now to live a newly born life. So you have this conversion experience, but now then you have this power within you, the baptism of the Spirit, to now live in the way that you ought to live. You see, the Pharisees were converted into Judaism at their birth. You're born into the line of Abraham, and so you were born a Jew, and so they thought, hey, I was converted into Judaism 
at my birth. And so they would hold out their birth certificate and say, hey, Jesus, here, look, I am a child of Abraham. I am a Jew by descent. Look, I have this conversion experience. And they would frame that birth certificate and they would hang it on their wall in a very prominent location for all the world to see because the birth certificate indicated and proved to everyone that they were born of Abraham's descent and that they were born a male. And they would have that birth certificate right next to their mezuzah, which, which is a little wooden box that they would keep a little tiny scroll of all the Ten Commandments in it, and they would indicate their righteousness and their ability to follow the law. And they would invite everybody, they walked into their house to come and look at their birth certificate and their mezuzah, and they would say, hey, look, look at me, look at me, I am a great Jew who is living rightly to God, I must be an inheritor of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees say, look at my birth, look at my descent, look at my religious observance, look at the signs of my conversion. Obviously, I am a candidate to receive the kingdom of God. And Jesus' whole point in this conversation is that what matters most is not, is not that you are born. The conversion, yeah, that's important, but that is not what is most important, right? That would be focusing on the baptism of water, that physical marker of your religion and your heritage and your gender to assume that you are worthy of eternal life. That would be focusing on the moment of your conversion to indicate that is where eternal life takes place and that is the proof of your eternal life. But what matters most is not that you were born. What matters most is that you are alive. And this is Jesus' whole point. The conversion is fine and it's good and all, but you cannot rest your salvation on an experience that happened a long time ago. What matters most is that you are living, that the Spirit of God is within you. What matters most is that your spirit is reborn and transformed and redesigned and restored and now overflows with strength and health and purpose and power and beauty and new life. Doesn't that sound wonderful? New life, eternal life, is not hidden in the past at the time of conversion, but it ought to burst forth from us as we live right now. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and therefore also to all of us, is that too many people hang up their life. Too many people hang up their, their salvation and the truth of following Jesus on an event in history. A conversion that they took place, an infant baptism, a baptism that they had, being born into the right family, whatever it may be, some event in history. You know, maybe you stood up at camp and you, and you put that stick in the fire indicating that you were, you know, committing your life to Jesus. Maybe you said a prayer one night silently in your bedroom and you, and, you, and you hang up your life and your salvation on that moment when you did that. Maybe you had an experience at youth group and then you came down and you bent before an altar somewhere. Maybe it was your grandmother's last dying wish that you believed in Jesus. And so you said, sure, Grandma, I believe in Jesus. And you hang up your salvation on something that you did once upon a time in your life. And you say, that's good enough, right? My conversion, that's proof. That's proof of me being a follower of Jesus. But what matters most is not that you were born, not that you were converted, but that you are alive. Now, the conversion isn't bad, right? There are decisions for Christ, and they're beneficial, and they're valuable. But Jesus' point is that this, what matters most is that you were born, not, uh, not that you were born, but that you are alive, that the Spirit of God is presently working in you, revealing and producing fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, justice, mercy, grace, forgiveness. That the spirit of life is at work in you and producing life in you. And now he goes on to tell us how this takes place. How does the life of the spirit happen? Well, he says this, Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, 
So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life, may be inheritor of the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't seem like a very good explanation as to how to acquire the spirit life. But to Nicodemus and his audience, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, this makes absolute sense to them. This, is, this makes absolute perfect sense to them. This is one of those things, it's like, if you don't know the Old Testament story, you're probably just utterly confused by this. The story that Jesus is referring to goes all the way back into Numbers. And here's how that story goes. As they traveled, this is the, the, the Jewish people, as they traveled in the wilderness, this is just after they were um, released from the Egyptians out of the Exodus, they begin to wander uh, on their way to the promised land. As they traveled, the people, they grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They had been living on the stuff called manna. It was like this uh, crusty, flaky bread that kind of showed up every morning as they walked outside of their tents. Um, it, wasn't <laughs> it was actually very, very healthy, and it sustained them. It had enough nutrients in them to actually get them through the day. Uh, and they'd been living on, on that manna and quail that God had sent them for, for about a year now. And so they were really getting sick and tired of this, of this manna and this quail. But they had forgotten already what life was like in Egypt, how they grumbled and they complained while they were in Egypt, and so God liberated them while they were there. But there are also these stories that came out of Egypt that tells of these cobras that were nesting in cooking pots. And so you'd go to cook, and then you'd open the pot, and there'd be this cobra that comes out, and it'd bite you and oftentimes kill many of their family members. Uh, cobras, cobras would nest under their pillows at night, so they'd go to rest their head down at night, and they would stir up a, a cobra nest, and and it would kill off their families. So all these crazy stories about these snakes who were biting. And so God comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to help you remember what life was like in Egypt a little bit. You're grumbling, you're complaining about life in the desert. So I'm going to help you remember what life was like in Egypt. The Lord sent venomous snakes, it continues, among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So, Mo, so Moses prayed for the people. Now, this is really important because the, the people really are hoping through their prayer that God is going to remove the problem. Right? We have this problem. It's the snakes in our midst. God, remove the problem. Get rid of the problem. That's what we want. Remove the problem. And isn't that so often our prayer as well? God, I have this problem. Get rid of it. I have this disease. God, get rid of it. I have this condition. Get rid of it, God. I'm... I'm I'm lacking in finances, so meet my need. Get rid of my unemployment. We do this all of the time. Remove the problem. Take it away. But here's what the Lord's response is. It's so fascinating. The Lord says to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and they will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. God doesn't remove the snakes. That's not his solution to the problem. He doesn't get rid of the problem as the solution. He doesn't remove the snakes. He doesn't banish them to some foreign land so that the Israelites won't have to deal with their problem or experience the pain of being bitten. What he does is provide a way through the problem. The problem still exists in their midst, right? He doesn't get rid of the problem. What he does is provides a way through the, pop, through the problem, through the pain for healing to take place. He tells Moses to craft a bronze snake and twist it around a pole so that when anyone who is bitten, they can look at the snake, lift it up on a pole, and they will be healed. And so this has become a universal sign for healing. I don't know if you guys are aware of where the symbol came from. 
It's become a universal sign for healing. Uh, Some people think that this is a a Greek sign, uh, but this incident in Numbers predates the the Greeks by a thousand years. So um, this is a universal sign for healing. God has issued a promise. God has issued a promise to the Israelites that anybody who has a disease, anybody who is sick, can look at the snake and they'll be healed. This is a promise that God has issued. So the people did and they were. The bronze snake became famous so much in fact that the people began to worship the snake several hundred years later in the life of hezekiah he went and he took that bronze snake and he destroyed it because the people were bowing down and worshiping to it the people misconstrued the snake as the source of their healing rather than the god behind it they thought it was magical and so they started to worship the snake rather than understanding that the snake's power right to heal came from the god who was behind it it was never about the snake being lifted up it was always about trust in God. Trusting in God, and the rabbis several hundred years had to clarify this. It was not the serpent that gave life, they said. So long as Moses lifted up the serpent, they believed on him who had commanded Moses to act thus. It was God who healed them. (coughs) Excuse me. So the event in the desert functioned as an isolated and and small-scale symbol of what God is doing in the world. The people were diseased, and their healing and their life came through their trust and their attention to that which had been lifted up. And so in the same way, Jesus says, we are all diseased. All of us are diseased with the curse of sin. All of us are experiencing the effects and the pain of sin. And our healing and our life comes through our trust and our attention, and that is what been lifted up on our behalf. But this time, it's not a snake on a pole. Rather, this time... It is Jesus himself being lifted up on a cross. And this time it's not just for the Israelites in the desert. This time it is for all of the sickened world. But in order to affix your attention on Jesus lifted up as the source of your healing, you must turn away from all of the other things that we attempt to find healing in. And you guys need to understand this. If you are going to turn your attention to Jesus, the one lifted up as the source of our healing, we need to turn away from all of those other things that we hope to find healing in. All of those other things that we try to fix ourselves with. All those other religious activities, those, those, those traditions or habits that we have, whatever it may be that we turn to to fix ourselves. We need to turn away from those if we are going to turn to Jesus. You see, the reason that Jesus irritated and still does irritate so many people today is because he requires sole ownership of our attention. And people don't want that. People want to have their own control and their own life. They don't want to give their sole ownership of their lives to Jesus. And he doesn't demand this because he's greedy. He doesn't demand this because he's insecure. He demands this because he understands and God understands that He is the only source of healing in the world. There is no other source of healing in the world. So all those other things we run to and we try and we attempt, they will fail every single time because Jesus knows and God knows that Jesus is the only source of healing and restoration available to anybody. Everywhere else we turn and place our hope and attention and worth and identity will ultimately fail us. And now what is so interesting is here that at the end of verse 15 Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus ends and we get to John's commentary this is now John's reflection on what Jesus has just said so John summarizes this whole conversation about life 
of the spirit versus the life of religion and the, and the life that is bursting with life and joy and peace and beauty and all these things with the life of attempt and try, a life that relies on our conversion and how one's attained it all, he describes it all, now he summarizes it all with the most famous verse in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have Eternal life. God desired so badly for us to be alive, recognizing the disease and the pain and the death that we were all in. He recognized all of this, and he wanted so badly for us to be alive, not just to be converted, not just to have a date on a calendar sometime in history, but to be alive, to be bursting with his spirit, to be bursting with love and joy and grace and beauty and everything that comes with this beautiful package. He desired this because... He loves us, and not just us, he loves the whole world, right? This, this word, world, in the Greek is the word cosmos. It means everything, literally everything. It means everything. <laughs> it means everything. There's no other way to describe it. It means everything. It means every little blade of grass. It means every drop of water. It means every speck of dirt. It's not just about us as individuals. It is about everything. God wanted to see restoration take place over all of his creation, and so he gave his son and so the picture that John is giving us of salvation goes so far beyond individual human salvation. God wanted all of his creation to be restored. And this love and this dream for a restored creation compelled him to make it happen in the only way possible. The only way possible for this to happen was by giving his son to be raised up on a cross. To be raised up on a cross, to suffer under the weight of the disease of sin and chaos and pain and turmoil to endure the worst sin and destruction can throw at him and after he had done its worst, to shame it and condemn it by putting it to death on the cross. And what is required of us then is simply our belief. It's not more religion, it's not more doing, it's not more trying to be good, it's simply our belief. But more specifically, the belief that sin and pain and disease that Jesus bore was not simply your neighbor's sin. And it was not the person's sin next to you, it is your sin that Jesus did this for. And it is my sin that Jesus did this for. See, ultimately what is required of us is to trust that when we admit and we confess our failures and our faults and our brokenness and our messed up hearts and our minds, when we agree that we are in need of a Savior that is so much bigger than our own feeble attempts to fix it, when we say, Jesus, here you are, here is my messed up life and everything with it, here is the dirt that I hide, here is all the scum gathered up in my mind, here it is, Jesus, I lay it out before you. Every single last one of my secrets that I hide deep within me, here they are, Jesus. I lay them out before you. I'm not secretly covering up one of them because I'm secretly, shamefully still attached to it, Jesus. I want to be rid of it all. I lay it before you, Jesus. Here they are. You want them, Jesus? They are yours. Happily take them, Jesus. Thank you. They are yours. See, when you lay them before the one who was lifted up, we need to trust God's promise. 
Trust God's promise that they have been taken and dealt with and put to their proper place, which is to death. God has taken them from us and put them to death. In exchange, God has given us his spirit now to live within us. See, God loved the world. God loved you, and he loved you, and he loved you, and he loved you, and he loved me. And so he sent Jesus to take our sin and our pain and our disease. And he bore it, and he put it on the cross. In exchange, he offers us his healing and his restoration and his life. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that this series is somewhat of a, of a Christmas prelude. That God gave his son to the world as a gift. And so we celebrate Christmas. God gave his son to the world as a gift, and so we celebrate Christmas. And every day of the year, we ought to celebrate Christmas. I hope the spirit of Christmas can permeate all of your shopping this year. I hope that this spirit of Christmas can permeate all of your opening of gifts and all of your family time. I pray that there would be peace in your life this Christmas season because we serve a God who loved the world so much that he gave. Now, I don't want to jump over Thanksgiving too quickly because, you know, that's important too, but the two aren't mutually exclusive. If God gave his son as a gift to the world, then Thanksgiving is the most appropriate response, right? The two go hand in hand in so many ways. You see, one of our goals at this church is to be making God known. It's to be taking this message of John 3.16 out into the world. And there are so many ways that we hope to do this this year. We, we want to we wanna help the world, the, the people who are far from God, recognize the beauty of God's love for them. That God sent his son so that the disease that they are experiencing does not have to ruin them. And so we want to be creative and we want to be active in the way that we do this. And I just, want to, I just want to speak into this just a little bit about how we're doing that this year so you could participate. Because that's one of the beautiful things about, about the story is that God did all of this and now he calls us all then to participate in the sending out and the loving of the world. And so today is the beginning of the giving tree. The giving tree is this opportunity to, to bless those in need within our local community by giving them gift cards so that they might produce a happy Christmas for their family. If you want to participate with us, there are cards in the back. There are cards in the back hallway. Take a card, take two, follow the instructions, and then on December 7th, we're heading out uh, to bless those families. And then on November 14th, we are doing our laundry love. We have $315 in quarters that have already been uh, raised. Our goal is $500 in quarters, and so we're, we're nearly there. Um, on the 14th of November, uh, just in a week and a half, we are we're going out, and we're going to pay for just a ton of people's laundry. And we're, we're going to have cards for all these things, by the way, that um, express how this Christmas season we are, we are living out to the God who loved the world that he gave. Um, so people will, will get a very clear indication of the gospel through this love. On December 9th, we're having a roadside rehab. This is like one of the, the great um, expressions of this because God came down into a mess that he didn't create, you know? And so we're going to go to Mill Creek and 13, and we're going to clean up a mess that at least I didn't create. Maybe some of you helped create it. I don't know. Um, but uh, on December 9th at 9 a.m., we're going to go clean up that, that on-ramp because it is really, really horrible especially when the the lawnmowers go over all the trash that's just there and just let it fly it just gets all the worse but um so we're gonna go and we're gonna clean that up 
Uh, on December 10th, we're doing a cookie convoy, and we're having an assembly party on the 10th. We're going to put packages together, 34 packages of cookies. Our goal is 100 dozen cookies, uh, by the way, so that we're going to go and distribute them to all the servicemen, libraries, uh, police officers, EMTs, uh, fire off, uh, firemen, hospitals, yeah, all those, all those kind of things. So we're going to be going out to all these places uh, with care, essentially cookie care packages uh, for all of these various people, again, with those notes of, of Thanksgiving and notes of what Christmas is all about from our perspective. And then on December 16th, we're hoping to do a free wrapping for anybody interested in free wrapping, uh, but a lot of places are, are denying our, our request to free gift wrap people, so we'll, we'll work on the details, but we'll do that. So, so here's the thing, all of these people, all these things require supplies, all of these things require people, um, but it's a participation in what God is doing through us so that we can share this gift of Jesus Christ with the world. Donation list, supply list, they'll be going out next week. So take a card, and then if you'd like to help, next week is your time to sign up to do that. But all of this because God so loved the world that he gave. God loved you, and he loved you, and he loved you that he gave to the world. He went out, he left. Right? We're not staying here doing all this stuff. We're going out into the world. We're meeting people where they are, in their mess, in their disease, and we're saying God loves you even where you are. In order that the world might be healed. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this for just a minute more. Here's the thing. John does not end his conversation here. He doesn't end his summary here. He continues, actually. He says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn you. That was not his goal. He came in the world to rescue you, and you have to understand that and believe that and own that as well. Jesus did not come to condemn you, to point out all your flaws and say, man, you have been a horrible, horrible human creature of mine. Good luck finding salvation somewhere else. He comes into the world to rescue you, to save you. Everybody is diseased. All right, we, we own that. We recognize that. Everybody is diseased. The snake has bitten everybody. We're all diseased. We're all, <coughs> oh, <excuse me. coughs> We're all condemned. And every person that has walked in the face of this earth and has ever walked the face of this earth has attempted to cure ourselves. We've all tried to do it our own way. We've all tried to fix ourselves by doing something on our own. And what John is saying here is that the only solution is to turn to Jesus. That's the only solution to find healing. That's the only solution to find rescue. It's the only solution to find uh, comfort from the pain that you are currently experiencing. If you do not stand before him trusting what he has accomplished as he was lifted up, and the power then of God behind it all, not only to forgive us and to heal us, but to empower us to live, then we will remain in our disease. That's all John is saying here. That if we do not trust Jesus, then we stay in our disease because there is no other solution to the problem. If we choose not to turn to Jesus, then we stay in our disease and therefore we stay in our condemnation. But thankfully, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life.